Okay, we're going to start with a pop quiz. You ready? Because you've been studying for finals. You're ready for a quiz. Here it is. How would you complete this little sentence here? My aim in life is blank. How would you complete that sentence? My aim in life is, what would you say? In other words, what is the dominant life principle of your life? What do you think Jesus would say? I'll tell you what Jesus would say because he said it exactly. Uh, he would say the dominant life principle of your life should be to pursue love. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, make love your greatest aim. A number of different versions put it this way, seek after love, pursue love, chase after love, follow the way of love, let love be your highest goal. It's in the imperative move, uh, and it's second person plural. You, all of you, the aim of your life should be, every single one of you, pursue love. It should be your greatest goal. We looked at Colossians 3, where this, this is the final message of this series. And in Colossians 3, which has sort of been the, the, the thematic passage of the series, we started with our identity in Christ. Uh, we looked at a number of different things. Last week, John talked about Colossians 3, 12 to 14, about love. There's our identity in Christ. Here are the things you should put on, uh, the character of God, holiness, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. But above all of these things, put on love because it's what love is. It binds together everything in perfect harmony. So last week, John looked at love and the culture of forgiveness in the face of resentment. Today, we're going to look at love and the culture of generosity in the face of self-indulgence. There's one path. Paul is just all over this whole topic of love. It should be your greatest goal, your greatest passion, your life, your life goal is have this as your dominant life principle to love. And uh, so probably the greatest passage, if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you've probably heard this passage read. So what I want us to do is let's all stand up together and honor God's word and let's read together. And this is from the NIV. So it's a little tricky. Just follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. 
For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Thank you so much. Go ahead and have a seat. And this passage describes the priority, the practice, the permanence of love. We're also going to look at the greatest opponent to love. So the priority of love, without love, he's just basically saying, all that I say is ineffective. I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong and a clanging symptom. In other words, words without love are empty. It's just it's just noise. The world is impressed by great communicators. I mean, you might have somebody who has great charisma, can communicate, they're a great teacher, they have great logic, great style, all of those things. But if that person does not have love, they're absolutely nothing. Because words without love are nothing. They're absolutely, totally ineffective. Without love, secondly, all that I know is incomplete. I can have the gift of prophecy. I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. But if I don't have love, he says, I'm nothing. A lot of you are getting ready to take exams for college, and you can work your fingers to the bone. You can graduate with the highest degree. Uh, you, can, you can graduate with so many degrees, they can nickname you Dr. Fahrenheit. But if you don't have love, it means absolutely nothing. You can be a genius. You can be a walking Bible encyclopedia. I mean, you can have so much knowledge theologically that you can split a theological hair 16 different ways. You can know so much that you are able to unscrew the inscrutable. But if you don't have love, he's saying it's totally incomplete. Without love, all I say is ineffective. All that I know is incomplete. And without love, all that I believe is insufficient. I can have faith I can be such a miracle worker that I can have faith that can move mountains. But if I don't have love, I absolutely am nothing. The devil believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and he even trembles at it. Mere belief is totally incomplete. The question is, have you responded to the God of love? Have you received his gift of salvation? Do you love him? Do you love others in the name of Jesus? Christianity is a lifestyle of love. You should make it your dominant modus operandi of your entire life. It should be your highest gain. For in Christ Jesus, it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. That counts for anything, nothing, but only faith as it works out through love. You see, without love, all that I even give is insignificant. I can give everything that I possess to the poor, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. You can give everything that you have, but if you don't have love, you, you can do it for all the wrong motives, all the wrong reasons. Some people give out of prestige to get their name on a plaque. Some people give out of power to control others. Some people give out of obligation just for guilt. You can give a lot without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Without love, all that I accomplish is inadequate. I, I can even surrender my body to the flames. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. 
you can rack up an awful big list of all kinds of achievements. You can be listening who's who. Uh, you can sacrifice your life for the kingdom of God. But without love, it won't matter at all. What Paul is driving home over and over and over again five different times in these few verses is that relationships based upon truth, expressing themselves through love, are more important than any accomplishment in all of life. It doesn't matter if you have the faith of a miracle worker, or the eloquence of an orator, or the knowledge of a genius, or the success of an all-star. You can have all of those things. But if you don't have love, Paul says it's zero, it's zilch, it's nada, it means nothing. So from five different angles, Paul says, all that I say, all that I know, all that I hope, all that I believe, all that I give, all that I do, is worthless without having a life of love. In other words, some of you are math, how many of you are math majors? How many, uh, oh, a lot of them, okay, you got a lot of them. How many of you have ever taken math? Okay. So some of you really like equations. So all Paul is saying is this, here's the equation for your life. Life minus love equals nothing. That's what he's saying. Oh, that's the priority of love. Look at the practice of love. So in Colossians, back to Colossians chapter 3, over all of these virtues, he says, and that includes holiness and compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering and forgiveness, over all those things, put on love because it's love that binds, it's the glue that pulls everything together in perfect unity. I love the Living Bible. It puts it like this. Most of all, let love guide your life. How are you going to let it guide your life if you can't even define it? So I thought if I were a millennial and wanted to find out what love meant, what would I do? Well, I would do a Google search on love, obviously. So I did a Google search on love. And in 77 hundredths of a second, 8,490,000 articles popped up in 77 hundredths of a second. I did not have time to read all of those. But, and I was thankful at the very beginning of the Google search and at least gave Merriam-Webster's definition of love. And it says that love is an attraction that includes sexual desire, the strong affection felt by people who have a romantic relationship, a person you love in a romantic way. So basically, Merriam-Webster reduced the definition of love down to two words, sex and emotion. So I looked up emotion. Uh, and in that definition, the word love was only used one time. And you know what it referred to? Quote, a passion involving physiological changes. That's how they define love, under emotion. And I thought, well, you know what? At least they got that part right because love is not an emotion. Love affects emotions. It causes emotions. But love isn't an emotion. So in fairness to emotion, I thought I would look up sex. So I looked up sex, and I won't tell you what I found. So you can imagine. So thankfully, the Bible is extremely practical. So it defines it very clearly, the, the practice of love. In verses 4 to 7, it's patient, it's kind. 
It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if that's the definition of love, let me ask you, what kind of lover are you? What kind of lover are you? Well, if you're like me, I thought, man, that's a whole different kind of definition. So I have got to have a mentor. Somebody has got to help me be the kind of lover that God wants me to be. And so are we ever in luck? So guess who is our best mentor? God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. And so there are two things that just jump out in Scripture. God clearly shows us that love is an action. It's not just something we say. It's not just something we do. It's not just something that we buy and, and spew out on a card. It's something you do. Just notice all the action steps. I, I would guess maybe a verse that most of us have at least heard, many of us have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. Love is an action. It reminds me of the guy who was trying to impress his girlfriend. He said, Mary, you know I would die for you. Mary says, oh, John, you're always saying that, but you never do it. <laughs> Love is a demonstration. It's a demonstration, not just an inclination. Many of you have heard me talk over the, over the last number of years, as many years as I've been here, about Donald Tabb. Well, Donald Tabb went home to be with the Lord just this last week, on Wednesday, actually. Uh, when I was talking about Billy Graham's funeral just a, a number of weeks ago, Don Tabb was the last of the four left. George Beverly Shea, Cliff Barrows, Billy Graham then died and only left Don Tab, who was my pastor, my mentor, my spiritual father, uh, etc. over the years. And uh, he discipled people while he was fishing. Just like his, the, the person who discipled him was um, Dawson Trotman. And Dawson Trotman discipled Don because Don, who is the captain of the rodeo team at Texas A&M, would always take Dawson Trotman for a week on horseback going up into the Rockies. So and they would camp, and he would disciple him. And so Don does that. He's taken me fishing a number of times. So they were out fishing. He, he was taking the person who led him to Christ, who was 86 years old. His name was Jack. Don is 85. And they took a young buck with him just to do all the work, and he was 60. And so they went, they went fishing down, I don't know if you've ever been to Louisiana, down where the, where the Mississippi broadens out into different passes out into the Gulf of Mexico, and there are areas where it can be very treacherous and the current's very, very swift. Well, there was a, a big wave that overturned the boat. It was Don's boat, 27 foot, flipped it over. Of course, none of them had life preservers on. Don was clinging to the hull, and the person who led him to Christ, Jack, uh, was going down, so he, he yelled at Pat, Pat Anderson, who was the, the young 60-year-old. He said, grab, grab Jack, he's going under. So he swam over, he had to go under the water, pulled him up, 
and had to swim with him 200, they speculated 200 to 250 or so yards from shore, had to swim to shore with him while Don uh, clung to the, to the boat. And when he got him to the shore, uh, he could not revive him. Jack had, had passed away. And by the time he looked back, the boat was under and Don was gone. Uh, they weren't even able to recover the body until yesterday evening, uh, from Wednesday morning till Saturday, Saturday night. The last pass of the helicopter saw him just before going out into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so here, here, Don, love is a demonstration. The last thing Don did, don't worry about me, go get Jack, and gave his, his he ended up dying. And this is exactly what happened to Don's mentor, Dawson Trotman. Many of you know the story. How did he die? Drowning, trying to save a young girl up in New York in a lake. He demonstrated his love over and over. Many of you know Don. Uh, Paul was, where's Paul? He was, oh, there he is, Paul. I, you know, when they, when they took a team down after Katrina, I mean, Don is right there helping and assisting and, uh, and loving, love was a demonstration in Don's whole life. Please be praying for me next week, this time next week. I'll be speaking to his Sunday school class, which is a pretty massive Sunday school class. Then on Monday, they'll have a, a, a nationwide celebration uh, at the LSU basketball arena, and I'll be speaking there on Monday. So if you just think, just, just pray that God will use that in a powerful way. So love is an action. Love is a choice. Secondly, you choose to love. You choose not to love. Love is not something that's merely incontrollable. I mean, it drives me nuts when you hear people, oh, I, I fell in love. You know, like love was a ditch or something. Oh, I fell. You know. <laughs> fell in love, you know. And, and no, it, it's, it's an action. It, it's a demonstration. It, it's a choice. It's, love is getting up in the middle of the night while your wife is pretending to sleep while the baby's crying. Uh, it's being, it, love is a choice. It's being patient with your husband when he's acting like a jerk, and that's most of us guys most of the time. It's giving your neighbor what they need, not what they deserve. Uh, love is giving when every emotion within you wants you to hold on tight. That's the practice of love, the permanence of love. It needs to be the aim of your life because love, it's the only thing that will last. That's what Paul says. Love knows no limit. I love the Phillips version. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. Love never fails. Every other dominant life principle will fail. If you live for fun, how long is fun going to last? If you live for money, how long is money really going to last? How, how long is your fitness going to last? Your health going to last? Just wait. Uh, if you live for things, they're going to decay soon enough. You can live for security and approval. That won't last. The only thing that's going to last is love. It's the only life principle that will last. It's permanent. In this life, we have three lasting things, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love because even in heaven, you're not going to need faith because we're going to see him as he is. We're not going to need hope because we're there. But in heaven, there will be love. It's the greatest of those three. 
That's why Jesus says, that's our new commandment, that you love one another just as I've loved you. It is the distinguishing feature of every Christian. Folks, listen, the distinguishing feature of you is not some cross hanging around your neck or, or swinging from your rearview mirror. It's not a dove on your lapel. It's not a WWJD rubber bracelet. The distinguishing feature of every Christian needs to be love. That's our sign. How are we to love? As I have loved you. Well, what's, if we're supposed to do that, then what's the greatest opponent? You know what the greatest opponent is? For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten son. The greatest opponent, folks, is us. It's me. The greatest opponent to love is you. That's why we need resurrection power. That's the whole theme of this series. That's why we need resurrection power. Because if we don't have it, we're sunk. Because to love, we've got to die to ourselves. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul underscores the, the greatest obstacle to, the, to love is self-seeking. Or in James chapter 5, verse 5, it's uh, self-indulgence. These things. Have you ever heard these trio of words? They go together constantly throughout Scripture. I just mentioned one. For God so loved the world that he gave. Do you see that the confluence of, of loving giving, and joy. They're constantly together through all the scriptures. You know, it's amazing. I was reading this book. I was getting ready for this message a number of weeks ago, and I was just reading this book as a financial book. It was one that was originally written back in the early uh, 90s, and then it was sort of reprinted uh, just a year or so ago. And uh, there were a couple of charts, so I began uh, to read these charts. Okay, and so Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin put it together. Joe Dominguez was doing a lot of research on uh, money spent, how much money you get in, and fulfillment in life. So he's doing all this research on this stuff, and he found something really interesting. So in other words, here we are. We start off, say, as an infant. Survival, comfort, luxuries. So we start off as an infant, and a baby gets hungry. What does the baby do? Cries. That's right. Any joy there? No, he's miserable. Joy, I mean, joy is down here when a baby's hungry. So something comes into that baby outside of himself or herself, and now they eat, and all of a sudden, they're happy. They're happy until they poop. And once they poop, what happens? Now they're miserable. What do they do when they're miserable? They cry. So there's no more joy. So mommy or daddy, usually mommy, comes in with a clean diaper, puts it on the baby, and now the baby has joy again. So even from an extreme little infant, we are trained to understand that when things come into our lives outside of ourselves, 
there's some joy, there's some fulfillment, there's some happiness there. So we, we're beginning to learn this life principle. So now it goes up some more. And so now we get to the level need, want, desire, or need, survival, want, comfort. And, and maybe there are things like uh, self-expression items. I remember when I was a little boy, when I was just a little bitty boy, getting my, my first baseball glove. I had it for years. I just got rid of it. Uh, I think my wife got rid of it. Uh, just... <laughs> Sorry that the mice were eating it up. But it gave me such incredible joy and fulfillment having that little baseball glove. Same thing with my bike. And then the biggest thing is when I got my saxophone. I thought, man, that was awesome. I played that thing for years. That's how I met my wife through uh, saxophone. Not sex, sax. Saxophone. Uh, so that was something that just gave us a lot of joy. And then, you know, now there, you enter into some luxuries here, things that you really don't need. You don't need it for survival. You don't really need it. But there are luxuries. Like we got, I remember us moving into a nice apartment. That was awesome after we got married. We had a nice apartment. We had a used car. And some of these things were, were pretty awesome uh, amenities to our life. So what Dominguez noticed was as as people who get more and more and more, he just, he thought joy, fulfillment, happiness would continue on up, but that's not what he observed. What he observed was the very opposite. There comes a point somewhere, and he just calls it enough. And usually what they found out was around 1910, most people in the United States just had enough. You had a number of people uh, around the world, it was usually kings, queens, aristocracy who had way more than enough. Everybody else, you're still down here in survival comfort, or a number of people who were just enough. And then they started to do all these statistics. So the National Opinion Research Center said that it was amazing. They went back, and so they had these statistics for years, and about 1950 was the highest mark where people were very happy. But ever since 1950, with the addition of things, more and more things, people are becoming less and less and less happy. As a matter of fact, Douglas LeBeer in his book, Modern Madness, uh, discovered, as he was discovering this, said that people down here, as they continue to work to get more and more and more, 60% of his sample suffered from depression, anxiety, and other job-related disorders, including massive amounts of stress. And so one of the authors of this book, it was uh, Vicki Robin, actually called this, instead of making a living, she calls it making a dying. That we're pushing ourselves to the point where we're killing ourselves, wanting more and more. Why? Why? Well, all of a sudden we realize around 1920, here after World War I, World War II, the, the um, Industrial Revolution, in order to keep the industry moving, had to convince us that we needed more than enough. So they came up with these schemes for advertising. They real, realized that we needed to sell money outside of the United States, and we needed to make sure people inside the United States needed more that they should not be satisfied with, with enough. So we actually even borrowed some information after World War II from the Nazis on mind control, and advertisers used that to help convince us that we need more. And so it's a $500 billion industry per year. $500 billion are spent per year to convince us 
that enough isn't enough. We need just a little bit, bit more in order to make us happier and happier and more fulfilled and more content. And it's having the exact opposite effect on our lives. It's killing us. So I begin to look at this and I'm thinking, man, the Bible speaks so much about this. But it's not the whole picture of what the Bible says. So I redid the graph, and you've got the verses. Here's how I redid the graph. It certainly talks about enough. It talks about contentment. There are tons of verses in the Bible that talk about contentment and enough. But it also gives multiple warnings of what it will do to your life, how it will kill you. But then it also talks about God's blessings as well. And then all of a sudden it hit me. All of it began to come together. That when we focus on this, it takes our minds. The center of it is me. What's best for me? And when what's best for me hits me, then all of a sudden it's more what, what drives me to consume more, which results in less joy, less happiness, less fulfillment. Because all of these things, you know what this is? From here to here, everything that you accumulate is called, and this is the words of Vicki Robin, clutter. It's just clutter. It causes us more stress. It, it, it makes us get, spend more in taxes. We have to fix more things. We have to service more things, uh, etc. And it just causes way more stress in our lives. But what the Bible makes very clear is that when we fail to love, that is when joy and fulfillment and contentment goes down. But what the Bible also says is that there are numerous occasions when God will continue to bless us with more and more and more. We are the loving good stewards he has called us to be. And that's why all of a sudden it hit me, Matthew 25, the whole parable of the guys with the talents. There was the one talent man who got his talent, and by talent, Jesus isn't using this illustration just to say money. It's your time. It's, it's, it's the use of your uh, treasures. It's the use of your talent, your talents, your gifts, and how you're using those things. Uh, this guy, he was so consumed in himself, he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do with it, so he buries it. He was, he was afraid of God. And so he buries it to consume on himself, to keep it for himself. And what happens? He loses everything, and he has zero joy. But what about the other two, the, the two-talent man, the five-talent man? They have the right perspective of loving and serving God, being the servants, the stewards that God wants them to be. So they take those talents, they invest those talents in the kingdom for God's sake. And what happens? God just keeps giving him more. Take, it, take away the talent from the one talent man, give it to the one with the ten talents, that he might have more. And then he, when he gets to heaven, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter into the, what's the next word? Enter into the joy, joy of your master. In other words, you're going to keep getting more and more. As you are a steward of what I give to you, as you steward those things, you're going to get, I will entrust you with more as a steward, and you are going to receive more and more joy along with it. So then I thought, that's exactly right. That, that is exactly what it is. And um, 
I'll tell a quick story. Uh, Doug, Doug actually knows this guy's son. I believe it's his son, right? Letourneau? Didn't? Yeah. So Letourneau, he's a guy, Letourneau University. This is in Longview, Texas. Uh, he's the guy who invented the electric wheel. The electric wheel, if you've ever seen earth-moving equipment, the, this guy figured out, you know, it's too complicated to try and have a direct drive going from the engine to the drive wheels on this, these massive earth-moving equipments. Everything kept breaking all the time. So he said, what about if we put an electric engine on each wheel? And, uh, and then the big engine on the front is merely a generator which drives the electricity to the wheels. And so he invented this, he an incredible engineer, and so he, he immediately became very wealthy. So he and his wife, they were very committed Christians, and they, and they were tithing everything they had, and all of a sudden they realized God is just blessing them with more. And he said, well, you know what, let's, let's give 20% and live on uh, 80%. And God kept blessing. You know, they were a steward because they said, you know what, we've got enough. We don't need to keep increasing our lifestyle. We've got enough. And then it was, well, let's, let's give 40% and live on 60%. And then it was 50-50. And then it ends up, they, were, they gave away 90% and they lived on 10%. Because why? Enough was enough. We don't want all these headaches. Let's enough, enough, and invest the rest for God's kingdom. And we've even had students from uh, here at Parkview actually go to Letourneau University if you're interested in engineering. It's a pretty incredible place. And I think this is exactly. Now, I'll see all these verses. You don't need to read them right now. I'm glad you have them. But as we get ready for communion, uh, I'm going to be sharing these with you uh, in an unusual way. So I just wanted you to have them. But when, when you think of Vision 2020, as you read through Vision 20, uh, 2020, hopefully most of you have the FAQs. It was sent out in the email. How, how many of you got the FAQ? Will you please read it? It is so well done. It, it answers your questions. It makes it very clear. It's very concise. It's very compelling. And it, it talks about the L. When, when I read these verses on God's blessing, when I read these verses on God's blessing, when I read the verses on God's enough, when I read the verses on God's warning, you're going to see uh, Vision 2020. It is so other-centered. It will knock your socks off. When you think of the L, what it's going to do for Faith Academy, when you, would you, would, when you look at what it's going to do to help the East Campus open it up to the, to the main part of the mall, when you look at Heartland moving, uh, moving the gospel towards uh, North Liberty and opening up the future for the next 10, 20 years of, of Parkview's influence, when you look at what's going to happen just at some of the things that we need upgraded here at the main campus, I just, I really want you to look, I really want you to read it with all of this in mind. This is, you need to pray these verses as you read through Vision 2020. And we're here, we want to answer your questions. We had great, great opportunities for you guys to give us a lot of great questions. We had tons of great questions. Uh, the feedback that we got was awesome and it helped develop this FAQ. If you still have additional questions, please talk to one of the elders, talk to somebody on staff uh, to get more information. Uh, about it. That, that would be great. But get those FAQs. If you didn't get it, please call the church. They'll send it to you. Uh, I've got it on my phone, so I don't have my phone, though. 
but um, you know we could pass it on to you somehow. But it, it's, you know, to me it's critical, folks. Listen, what Iowa City needs right now, Iowa City desperately needs for love to effervesce out of Parkview Church in very, very tangible ways. And I think Vision 2020 does it. I, I think what we're doing with all these students that were up here uh, all over uh, the world uh, are very tangible ways for the gospel to be expressed. Uh, love needs to be a movement. It needs to be active. It needs to be sacrificial. And it can only happen because God first loved us enough to send his son. And that's what communion is all about. So we're going to take some time now, celebrate communion, and to celebrate his incredible love for us. We needed it so desperately. He sent a son uh, to live as a perfect human being, to give us the picture of divine love, and then for us to understand how much we need God's help, that we're sinners, we're so fallen, uh, far from his from his love, far from his grace, and we desperately need Jesus uh, to save us. And so God gave Jesus, who died on the cross for us. Communion is intended for believers. Uh, if you're here, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, please just let the elements pass by. But don't just leave. Please talk to somebody on staff. We'll have people up here after the service. Talk to somebody on staff. Talk to one of the elders about what it means to become a believer in Jesus Christ.